in December and January and February and March of this last year, I had finished studying through each chapter of the New Testament. And I came to Jude, and I finished Jude. And the next was Revelation. And I confess to you that I did not want to start studying Revelation. I don't understand it. I'm just going to be honest with you up front. But I started studying it. And I want to tell you, I got blessed. I got blessed. And I want to share some of that with you today. In fact, in uh, the first chapter, the third verse, there is a promise. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. And so I got blessed. God fulfilled His promise to me. And so I want to share that with you. Let me tell you a little bit about Revelation. God don't want you to study this book. I mean, Satan don't want you to study this book. He don't want you to get in it at all. Satan will tell you that Genesis is a myth and Revelation is a mystery. So you just need to stay out of those. But oh my goodness, what we see as bookends of all God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, we see a bride given to her groom. In Revelation, we see a bride, the church, given to her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis, we see Satan revealed. When we get over to Revelation, we see Satan restrained. So much we see all coming together again in God's Word. And that just has spoken so much to me. This book is amazing. And I want God just to give us a little of it today. The book, the human writer of the book is by the Apostle John. And it's interesting, we're told right up front the purpose of the book in verse 1 of chapter 1, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Soon take place, we're told. And I believe that with all my heart. And then what follows is the events that we're going to look at in some of those. It's interesting when you study the Word. It is a word that also, the book is is one of the few books in the Bible that gives us the outline for itself, and it does. It is also a book that in the Bible that must be taken literally and symbolically. Kent, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. No, I'm not. Let me tell you what I'm saying. 
In fact, in the 12th chapter of Revelation, you find out that the great red dragon had a tail so long that he swept one-third of the stars out of the sky. But when you get into the 12th chapter of Revelation, you find out that the red dragon is Satan, and it's talking about those angels that rebelled against God and became demon spirits and followed Satan, one-third of them. So it's the symbolically and reality that you put together to understand what God is saying to us. And I want you to see that. In fact, we talked about the book, how it is outlined as such. Uh, We find out in the 19th verse of the very first chapter how it's outlined. The Bible tells us what John has seen is chapter 1. What is now is chapter 2 and 3 where we're going to be. And what is to come is chapter 4 through chapter 20. I believe in the futuristic interpretation of the Word of God. What do you mean, Kent? I mean that this that we study in chapters 4 through chapter 20 is yet to come after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, His second coming. And that they will be fulfilled just as prophesied in the book, just as all the prophecy in the Old Testament has been fulfilled, and we see it in the New Testament and in our lives today. That's how it is to be interpreted. So I want you to see what is happening here. We're going to be looking at some things, at a city in particular, and I want you to understand it. In the third chapter, or in the second chapter, rather, we find churches that are mentioned by name, seven of them beginning in the second chapter. John, the apostle, we're told by a historian was placed on the Isle of Patmos after the death of Nero and he stayed there until the death of Dominion. I'll get his name right in a minute. And that it was three years. The Isle of Patmos is about 40 miles off the coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. It is about 10 miles long, about 5 miles wide. It's sort of crescent shape. And this John was placed there so that God could speak to him. And God told him, you write what I say. And he begins to write a letter to these seven churches. It will be passed to each of the churches, the one that it belongs to. And they will know that it is the place that it's from God and the place that he's writing about. We're going to look at Smyrna. Smyrna was an interesting town. Smyrna was a beautiful place. It had a harbor larger than Ephesus Harbor. It was 35 miles on around from Ephesus. When you got off the harbor, there was a road that went all the way up to a hill. This road was called the Golden Way. And on the top of the hill was 
a place, Apollos there was a place that had some interesting buildings. But the most interesting of all those buildings was a temple, a temple to Caesar. And that temple was evidence of the fact that Smyrna was very, very loyal to Rome. When you took that golden street from the harbor and you were going up to that temple at the top, on both sides of that golden street, on that road, were altars to pagan gods, like parking meters on both sides. Every god you could imagine was there. Apollos, Aphrodites, Nemesis, all the gods lined on both sides. This place, Smyrna, is an interesting place. The word Smyrna is an interesting word. Smyrna, as it's called there, in three other places in the Bible, the word Smyrna is translated myrrh. Not even close, is it? It's translated myrrh. And it, myrrh, you remember, was given, brought to the baby Jesus when the wise men brought him silver and gold and myrrh. There's a third time in Jesus' life here on this earth that myrrh enters again. When he was on the cross and was dying on the cross, he was offered wine and myrrh. And then when Jesus a third time was buried, was laid in that tomb, there were the cloths that were laid over him had spices and myrrh. Same word that is translated Smyrna. So up at the top of Pagos, where that altar was, looking down on that town, Smyrna had great emphasis about something else. Smyrna was very wealthy, prosperous, very prominent, very affluent for its day. And in the middle of all of that, there was a little Christian church made of Christians, small, poor. They didn't have anything. They had a pastor they loved. They had a book they adored. And they had a Lord Jesus Christ that they were depending on for everything. That's all this little peop- these people had. And uh, all of this was going on in the middle of this highly pagan city. And the Bible tells us in verse 9 that it was right on the doorsteps of hell. I hope you have your Bible open to Revelation 2. And I want you to stand and follow along as I read aloud beginning in verse 8 through verse 11 about this city and these people. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now it's interesting, who died and came to life. At one time, Smyrna 
was a Greek colony, and it was destroyed. It died. 400 years later, it was restored, 200 B.C., as a Roman city. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are, syn- but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says or what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers all will not be hurt by the second death. Now get this scene. This church at Smyrna had gathered to get a word directly from God written on parchment. What would it be like this morning if you and I, before we got to church this morning, would know that God had written us a personal letter? Think about that. They were waiting to see what God was going to say. So this is a letter to that church that has been written But I want you to understand it's also a letter to Grapevine Baptist Church. Would you pray with me? I just want to share that this morning some of us come with a lot of burden and with pain. I want you to know that there's people praying right now through this whole service in this place. And while some of us may not be where you are, Only in a matter of time will we have that need as well. So we lift all these to God as well. Father, in the American church, today we see so many who claim to be yours, but they have allowed the world to intimidate them, to dictate the standards that they will live by, And as a result, we have developed even animosity toward you, Father. Animosity towards one another, even hostility at times. And so, Father, my prayer is for we, your children, that in the pressures that we face, that we would reflect your brilliant glory and be filled with your Holy Spirit as we come to worship our Savior and our Lord. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. There are three messages that is sent to this little church in Smyrna 
in those verses that we just read. And I hope you'll take your outline and you will look at those. First of all, there is the tribulation. There is the message of tribulation. Write that in, would you? Right at the very top. The, tri- the message of tribulation. Look again in verse 10. Do not fear, God tells these people. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The letter says problems are coming. They've gathered to hear what God has to say and they already have so much going on in that little church of problems and difficulties, and he says there's more coming. There is more coming. So I want you to see, first of all, the tribulation of persecution. The tribulation of persecution. The Greek word for persecution there is not the word that's normally used for persecution in other places in the Bible. It's an interesting word. It has the meaning of someone who is chained to a rock on the ground, a flat rock on the ground, and a huge, extremely heavy rock is slowly rolled over their body until life itself is pressed out of them. It's pressure beyond your ability to stand it. And he says, I know you're under that kind of persecution. Understand, that's not like the persecution that you and I think we have. This is persecution for the cause of Christ. How many, if any of us, have ever had that kind of persecution in our life? And he says, this is what you're being persecuted for. And I want you to understand that. And more is coming. More is coming. These altars to foreign gods that were on both sides of the street of gold, the golden street, this little group of Christians could have built an altar there to the Lord Jesus Christ and it would not have bothered anybody. He would have been just one more God on all the gods up and down both sides of that street. But they refused to do that. They said this is the Lord Jesus Christ and that in Him is salvation and in no one else. They're saying there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's what they're saying. And because of that, they did not put an altar there. But all those altars on either side was not the main focus of worship. You could worship those at those altars whenever you wanted to, whatever your heart dictated. But there, up on the top, where those, the altar, that temple was built to Caesar... That was the place where everybody's focus was. Once a year, people had to go up on the top of that, to that temple. And they had to 
do this. They took a particular powder in their hand and they would throw it on the altar of the fire and when they did so, they would say, Kaiser Kurios. Kaiser Kurios. That means Caesar is Lord. It wasn't a big thing. People didn't take it seriously. You only did it once a year. When you did it, there was somebody who recorded your name, and then they gave you a stub, a receipt, which said you're good for a year. You have, you have honored your obedience to Caesar, and that's all there was to it. That's all you had to do. And you did it just to get along. They didn't think anything about it. You just did it to be part of the crowd, to get along with the crowd so you wouldn't be any different. And so that's what was going on in all of this. But the Christians would not say, Kaiser Kurios, that Caesar is Lord. When they would go there, they would say, if they got up around that, they would say, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. And they were malayed for that in all different ways that you can imagine. Nobody thought anything about that little band of Christians there who every year was faced with their allegiance to Caesar, or to the Lord. That's why they were persecuted. They wouldn't pledge their allegiance. What would you have done? What would you have done? Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, unless it cost me too much. I think I'd have been leaving. I'd have got my membership out of that church in a minute. This little band of people remained faithful to the calling that God had given them. How many of us go along to get along? How many of us decide it's a lot easier to go with them than to stand against them? I want to tell you, if you are going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be called a bigoted. You're going to be called unloving. You're going to be called a hater. But there are times in our life and they're getting closer and closer together and they're coming right to Madisonville and they're coming right to where you live that if you're going to be a follower of Christ in grace and love, you're going to have to say, Thus saith the Lord, I cannot move off of this. I cannot move off of this. This is where I'm going to stay. I cannot move off of this at all. Uh, Where would I stand? Where would I stand? I want to show you something else. Not only was in that tribulation of persecution, that persecution on the, hum- on the human level, right this end, was misery. Those people were in miserable conditions. But let me give you some more. There was the persecution of satanic persecution leveled at them. 
And that's the persecution of mystery. A mystery. Would you write that in? They couldn't understand. Here we are, God's faithful people in this pagan city. And God's telling us more is coming. And it's a mystery. Why is this happening to me, God? I've been faithful to you. Have you ever said that to him? I've been faithful to you. Why is this happening? It's a mystery on the satanic level. But let me tell you something else. It's also persecution on a a a divine level. It is a ministry. Did you get that in verse 10? It's a ministry. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Some of you into prison. And then it goes on to say, notice that, in verse 10, that you may be tested. That you may be tested. Have you ever thought of testing as a ministry? We don't want ministry that way. You can't hardly get us to do ministry when it's easy. But when you start testing me in it, it's going to be tough. And it's a ministry, we're told. Why were they so poor? Because a lot of things had been taken from them. All that they had had been taken from them. Because they did not worship one of those gods up and down that golden street, they were unable to find work. If you worshipped one of those pagan gods, you were in a guild or you were put in the union where you would get a job. And they refused to do that. They were not a part of that, so they did not have anything at all. And their poverty was terrible in all of this. They had nothing whatsoever. He says in verse 9, I want you to see... Secondly, there was a pers- the tribulation of persecution, but now I want you to notice the tribulation of poverty. The pri- tribulation of poverty in that first message. Notice what it says in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. That's the reason they were so poor. All of it had been taken from them. Everything had been. And they had nothing left hardly to live off of. Only what they could get together. Now, the word poverty doesn't mean just barely making ends meet. The word poverty here means absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. These people had nothing whatsoever. They were the poorest of the poor. They weren't just barely getting by. They were doing without all of this. Absolute destitute. It's what was going on in their lives during all of this. If they had a place to worship at all, I want to tell you, it would not be near as opulent at this, as this place. There would be no chariots outside with gold on the wheels, even if they had a place to worship, like a building of some type. They were destitute of everything at all. We can't understand that because you know why? Listen to me carefully. We live in an overfed, overhoused, overrecreated, overpleasured, overpampered society. And we have no idea of that kind of persecution and having nothing whatsoever. 
And then God says in the message, there's more coming. There is more coming. More coming, he says, in all of that. The tribulation, not only of poverty, but of profanity. Profanity. See that in verse 11? We read a while ago, And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers uh, will not be hurt by the second death. Let's go back to 10. And he says that you may be tested, uh, that he knows their suffering. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and we will give you a crown of glory. And then, I'll find it here just in a minute, they also had a group of Jews who were of the church of Satan. Did you know Satan had a church? He sure does. And they were of that church of Satan, and they didn't like these Jews because these were Jews that were worshiping Jehovah God. They didn't want any part of that whatsoever. The tribulation of poverty. The last I want you to see, or the second rather, is a message of treasure. Here's the part that's hard to understand. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. But you are rich, he says. You're rich. Goodness, it's hard to understand that. With all the poverty they had, with all that was going on, but it's a measure, a message of treasure, these people. When the word rich is used there, I want you to understand that it's a word that means the richest of the rich. The richest of the rich. It's where we would put the gates of today's society. Uh, that wealthy. He says you are that wealthy. I want you to understand what he's really saying. He's saying that what we own and what we work our lives to death for is really not what makes you wealthy. It's not what makes me wealthy. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's part of it. You remember we talked about this in our Sermon on the Mount a few Sundays ago, Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are, the, are you when others revile you and persecute you and uh, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. A message of treasure. That's what he's saying. A message of treasure in all of that that you've been going through. They're impoverished. They're persecuted. And yet they have everything. How much do you have? How much do you really have? Let me tell you how much you have. Here's how much you have. And here's how much I have. We have... What money can't buy and what death can't take away, that's really all you have. That's all I have. What money can't buy and death can't take away. Now, how much do you really have? How much do we have? And he's saying to them, you are rich. You're rich, irregardless of material possessions. You're rich. In all your tribulation and in all this that's going on, 
You have a treasure, he's saying. A treasure. You know what we do? We have this thing in our mind that says, if you're a Christian and you have some wealth and you have a lot of possessions, then God must be really blessing you. Now, dig down to the basement level of where you live. We crouch it in Christianese, but we think just like the world thinks, if you get a lot of possessions, God must be really blessing you. That's not the measure for blessing. It's not the measure at all. In fact, God's Word in 1 Timothy 6, 6 tells us godliness plus contentment is great gain. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. Not all those possessions that I have. Not those at all. But godliness is great gain when I'm content with that. That's what he's saying. But there's also a message of triumph. And I want you to see that as well in this message. He doesn't leave them there. The message of triumph. Again, in verse uh, 10, I want you to see this. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Now, he's already told them he's going to put them in prison. That 10 days is not 10 literal days. That is a period of time from 150 A.D. to 312 A.D. Those were called the 10 seasons of great, great persecution against the Christians. He's saying there'll be an end to your persecution. And he's saying that you are to be faithful unto me even unto death. Let me tell you, friend, that doesn't mean that you just need to be faithful till you get old and die. You ought to be, but that's not what that means. That means you're to be faithful even if it means you'll lose your life for being faithful. That's what he's telling him. But let me share something with you. We know one of the pastors of this church. It's interesting when you get to know something about this particular man. Uh, I want you to know about him. His name was Polycarp. I know you don't know any Polycarps, but this man's name was Polycarp. Polycarp was a godly man, but Polycarp would not say well, all the rest of those people who lived in that that colony would say, he would not say that Caesar was Lord, but that Christ was Lord. And so I want you to listen to what happens in him. During a time of the games, you know Rome was known for the games, and during the time of one of the seasons of one of their games, In 155 B.C., when the town was full of all the people who had come from far and wide to see and be a part of the games, this pastor, this bishop of this church that we've been studying about, 
was going to be put to death. And when the soldiers came to get him, Polycarp wanted them to be fed and to be given drink and to be made comfortable while they were at his house. And so he did. And then he asked if he could spend the last hour of his life in prayer. And he did. They allowed him. He was to be burned at the stake. And when it come time to be burned at the stake, usually in every case they would nail their hands to the stake because people didn't want to stay there while the fire was burning. But Polycarp told them, said, I will not run. And they didn't nail his hands. And he stood right there till he was consumed by the fire. But I want to share with you what he says. We have a whole lot of the history of what he said during that last time, but I just want to share some of it. Because they said, please, they begged him, please just say Kaiser Kurios. And he would say no. And he would re, re, return that with saying Christo Kurios. But here's what he said before they lit the flames. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? How can I do that? He who has an ear, verse 11 says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches the one who conquered will not be hurt in the second death. Most people have no idea what the second death is all about. They're not even, they don't want to be concerned about the first death. One is enough. And here you're talking about two, Kent. Listen to what the second death is. The Bible tells us in verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Now get a mental picture of what's going on here. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And the death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then verse 15, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friend, I want to tell you, anyone whose name was not found in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name may be found on a lot of church rows. Your name may be found in a lot of prominent places. You may be judged as the best of the best. But God says, unless you belong to Him, you have by faith received Him, your name will not be written in the Lamb's book of life. And you will endure the second death. 
you think the first death may be bad, the second is going to be eternal. My goodness, do you understand what he's saying to this little church? What he's saying to us this morning? He is saying, I want you to know that wealth is what you have in relationship to me and nothing else. No matter what you have or don't have, you are wealthy if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are wealthy. You are the wealthiest of the wealthy. And what you have here will mean nothing in a very short time, folks. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. But you will avoid the second death. You will have a crown of life, the Bible says. Those crowns represent victory. They represent reigning. Those you will have. These words are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. God's saying, I've been through this. I know. I'm A through Z. I can provide everything you need. Now listen to me. We may not be burned at the stake. We may not have the privilege of being martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ. We may not be beheaded. We may not even come to the place where we are in dire poverty because we have worshipped and clung to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you listen to me carefully. Why can't we? I'm talking about myself as well as I'm talking about you. Why can't we die to the sin that we love and that we pamper and that we live with and we think God does not see it and He's not going to do anything about it? Why can't we die to the anger that we have? Why can't we die to the fact that we don't love some of the people in the church sitting beside us? Why can't we die to all those things that God has called us to be released from? Why can't we do that? Even if we're not going to go through what these people went through. Why can't we do that? Goodness. God could change Hopkins County, Madisonville, your street, my street, if we would die for that. I want to tell you, is there on the bottom of your outline. If we had burning hearts, brimming eyes, and bursting lips, it'd make a difference in this town. It'd make a difference in this town. A big difference. Let me tell you about myrrh. Myrrh's sticky. It's like a balsam. It comes out of a tree. It's very aromatic. smells wonderful. And when myrrh is squeezed out of these trees and brought out of these trees and left alone, it, to- it turns as hard as a rock. And when it gets hard, it gives off no perfume at all. No perfume at all. And the only way you can give it to give off that aromatic perfume that is so wonderful to smell is you have to beat it into small pieces. 
you know, I think that's what it takes for the church. I think that's what it takes for my life and for your life as an individual. I want you to listen to what Mark Batterson wrote in his book, All In. And if you've never read that book, you need to read that book. I want you to listen to what he says. It just really is, uh, gets to my heart because it spokes to me. He says, when did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to, be, to have easy things? When did we start believing that faithfulness is holding the fort? That playing it safe is safe? That there is any greater privilege than sacrifice? That radical isn't anything but normal? Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. You understand that? Dangers to sin and to Satan. We have fallen into this. We live this way. We've never learned to take up our cross daily. And we don't want persecution. We don't want that at all. Let me tell you, if you want comfort and convenience... You don't want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I know that's not popular. I didn't come to be popular. I want to tell you the truth. But my friend, if you want to taste transistance, if or that which is transistent against everything else, if you want to have a life that counts, if you want to have all that God's got to give you, then friend, I want to tell you, don't you want to leave a legacy that will point people to Jesus Christ? That he can say, I know you're faithful and I know what you're going through. I know all of that. Don't you want that? Let me tell you one last thing about this town, Smyrna. It's modern-day Izmir in Turkey. It's a large town, large city. I've been in it. I've preached at all these spots. And I want to tell you something about it. It's the only one of the seven churches that still is in existence today. And it has almost a half a million Christians in that city because those people were faithful. Those people were faithful in that day. That's what I'm telling you. We're to be faithful. What God calls us to be. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully before I come off this platform. I appeal to those in this congregation, whether you got your membership on this church role or some other church role, I want to appeal to you to listen to what God is saying. We are moving into a time of such persecution and difficulty that one day you'll look back on this time and you'll think, I wish I had that time back. I wish I could have that back. But I want you to know, if you have never received Jesus Christ as Lord, that God's given you that opportunity this morning. I don't know what you came here for, but God brought you here. It's not by accident that you're in this place. I want you to understand that when you decide to follow God, there's a lot of things that will happen. 
I want you to know that when you decide that you want to leave the life that you've been living and you want to turn to Jesus Christ, no matter what it's going to cost you, when you come to that place, you're going to have great grief over your sin. But you've got to have more than that. You may shed tears, but you've got to have more than that. You will be sorry for the way you live, but you've got to have more than that. I want you to know that you're going to have to have repentance, which means turning from self and all those things and turning to God to receive Him as the Lord of your life. As the Lord of your life. No other God but the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm inviting you this morning to do that. I also wonder if every one of us in this place this morning could leave this place saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's my Lord. I hope He's your Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to ask you to stand. We'll be standing here at the front. As we have this invitation this morning, I'm inviting you to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And all that He does, would you do that this morning? Father, this morning, as Your Spirit begins to work in our life,